the San Francisco Experience podcast. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 25, Episode 13. Today, the San Francisco Experience celebrates our 500th episode. Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Talking with author Jennifer Burns. Our guest today is Jennifer Burns, Associate Professor of History at Stanford University and Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. She's the author of Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. Jennifer has also written for the New York Times, the Financial Times, and Bloomberg. She joins us from her office in Palo Alto. Hello, Jennifer, and welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Jennifer, who was Milton Friedman? So, first and foremost, Milton Friedman was an economist, most associated with the school of monetarism, and uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1976. But as I talk about in my book, he's also, beyond being an economist, he became a public figure who was very associated with a specific view of limited government and personal freedom. So he was, he was very much, a, we can think of him as a libertarian in his government philosophy. And then even beyond that, he was a policy designer and an architect of many of the policies that we live with today, from floating international exchange rates to income taxes being withheld from your paycheck to an all-volunteer army. These are all ideas that Friedman either first proposed or was intimately involved in their becoming reality. Mm-hmm. Very definitely a a very creative thinker. And I, of course, remember as he was expounding some of these concepts before they were adopted, widely adopted, that at the time they seemed to be very radical, the all-volunteer army or school vouchers. And since then, of course, many of those, many of his policy recommendations have been, have been adopted and uh, we don't think twice about them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he spent a good part of his career being considered eccentric, wacky, kind of crazy, both as an economist and as a political thinker. And then over time, his views just really moved into the center as times changed, as people decided to try new things, as there became a broader shift in thinking about how markets could be creatively used to structure policy, rather than relying solely on the federal government or interventions into the price system. So it's really remarkable. I, I trace over the course of the book him really sort of becoming a moving from being a maverick to being right at the center of things. Mm-hmm. And his reach was not only here in the United States, it was global in scope. Yeah, and that's one thing that's interesting. He started his research into the causes of the Great Depression, which was a deflation, as he described it, a collapse in the money supply. But he then became, through this research, an expert on the problem of of inflation, rising prices. And in the 1970s, inflation became a pervasive problem for developed economies in the industrialized West and also for developing economies. So when inflation broke out globally in the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of vital research on it. And so Friedman, and in particular with his work with Anna Schwartz, had sort of written a book on what is inflation, and he had the theories about it. And so he became very much in demand as someone to counsel governments on how to manage inflation. And that also then brought along his broader vision of a reduced government that tried to do less and a private sector that would do more. Jennifer, how did you come up with the title Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative? 
Well, you know, it's interesting, and I, I have taken flack for this title because it wasn't um, a word that Friedman really used for himself, but there's two reasons. One is because as an economist, he really was someone who tried to conserve and rely upon older traditions in the discipline. And what many people don't know is that Friedman departed from his contemporaries in not wanting to use ever-increasing mathematical models to analyze economic activity. He really stuck to empirical research uh, data from the real world and tried to derive somewhat limited partial equilibrium theories from that data. He didn't want an all-encompassing system because he really believed economic activity is too complicated. There's too many variables to really capture. Like you'll have a great model, but it will just tell you about the model. It won't tell you about the real world. So, So he's a conservative in his approach to economics which is why he was really out of step for quite some time with his contemporaries. And secondly is he was very politically engaged and the people that he politically engaged with, be they presidential candidates or journalists or authors or political activists or organizers, all of those people called themselves conservatives and thought of themselves as part of the American conservative movement in the 20th century. And in fact, American conservatism in the 20th century really incorporated Friedman's ideas about limited government, about what capitalism could do and in a way that you know is is different than what's happening today and in many ways today's conservatism is reacting against the conservatism of Milton Friedman. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the book you quote another great economist of the 20th century John Maynard Keynes and I quote the ideas of economists and political philosophers both when they are right or wrong are more powerful than is commonly understood unquote. Friedman's political philosophy, perhaps more than any other 20th century economist, became widely known through his Newsweek column and also his TV series, Free to Choose. Was it a case of the right man with the right ideas at the right place at the right time? You know, I think uh, what I try to do is I think about Friedman is explain the internal coherence of his ideas, how he derived them, how he came to see them as true, which was a mix of his philosophical leanings and his economic investigation. But then there really was a shift in what happened historically, what happened in the years in the post-World War II synthesis, which saw an increasing size of federal government, more interventions into the economy, which for a great long time delivered general prosperity. But then the slump set in, the inflationary slump of the 1970s set in. And it's at that point that the things that Friedman had been saying suddenly started to make sense. And part of that is because the old policies had kind of run out of steam. The other thing I talk about quite a bit is once you're in an inflationary environment where the price level is rising dramatically year over year for up to a decade, a lot of the problems, uh, there are new problems. And so in particularly in the United States, there became a problem of ever increasing property taxes, say, for example. So then Friedman's idea that taxes are too burdensome, and we need to reduce them in order to unleash economic activity, it, it sort of becomes true as the tax burden increases due to inflation. So there's a lot of places in which his ideas sort of become true because of changing circumstances, or they become more applicable. And what I would say is really most important about Friedman is, of course, it's important that he worked with conservative politicians and leaders, but it's also important that many of his ideas and orientations and outlook were eventually taken up by Democrats and Mm -hmm. really became somewhat the common wisdom. And I would say this really happens in the 1990s into the 2000s. 
And then we haven't touched too much on monetary policy, but there's also a very long tail of Friedman's influence in how we think about central banking, the role of central banks, and their sort of duties and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, he was uh, he was an advisor to presidential candidate Barry Goldwater in 1964. Additionally, when President Nixon came into office in 1969, uh, he was uh, he advised President Nixon, and apparently, President Nixon always wanted to stay on the good side of uh, Milton Friedman. didn't want to didn't want to face his wrath. But let's move forward from the from the Nixon administration, where his ideas did hold some sway, particularly with the Bretton Woods structure. Let's move on to 1973, 1974. The in Chile, Salvador Allende was elected a Marxist. Was elected in 1970. He remained in power till 1973. A military coup overthrew him at the time of his overthrow. After massive nationalization and 600 percent per annum inflation, the military government was kind of stymied as regards finding a solution. A number of Chilean academics had studied at the University of Chicago, were familiar with the theories of Milton Friedman, and they were known as the Chicago Boys. I myself lived in Chile in 1980 and 1981 and was familiar with some of those players. Tell us about Milton Friedman's trip to Santiago, and you devote a chapter to it in your book called Seven Days in Santiago. Tell us about that that particular uh, that particular visit, because some of his ideas were adopted by the Chilean government and still to this day are being practiced. It's really interesting. So Friedman had that global reach, and in some ways his ideas were more impactful in countries like Chile or Great Britain that actually had a more developed state sector, and they had more state ownership of the means of production or state ownership of companies, so that when Friedman talked about privatization in the United States, It's already a lot of privatization in the United States sort of by design. So at any rate, he comes to Chile in 1976. And what's interesting is the shift post uh, the there's a coup, the dictator takes over. He first about the first year continues many of the policies of the Allende regime and is able to make some headway with inflation, bring it from 600 to 300%. Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of, they're in the national, a lot of nationalized properties, a lot of state interventions in the government, and the military is actually quite comfortable with this model. But they can see it's not working. So they decide to switch it up and they bring in a cohort of these American trained economists. And it's at that moment that Friedman comes in, when the policy is is already moving in his direction. Mm -hmm. And he basically comes in and speaks to the leadership and says, this is going to work. Yes, it's going to be painful, but you'll get inflation down and you'll ultimately create a more prosperous economy. Now, the other thing he says, and he says this right to Pinochet, is if you liberalize your economy, it's going to liberalize your society. And he truly and deeply philosophically believes this, that political freedom and economic freedom are entwined. And so he's not in any way a supporter of Pinochet, he thinks of himself as sort of a doctor who's been called in to advise a sick patient. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he believes that if they follow his advice, eventually the dictatorship will fall. And so what ends up happening is he's enormously criticized for this trip, and it's interpreted as an endorsement of the regime. And he is deeply wounded by this and and works really hard to say, no, I I was not trying to endorse Pinochet. I was just trying to provide, you know, an, an economic explanation of what they should do next. And so then as time goes on, many of his ideas are applied. And because Chile has such a big state sector, and then because they have a government that has freedom of action in the economic sphere, because it's not a democracy, 
they're able to implement privatization programs. You and I were chatting about the privatization of social, what is their equivalent of social security, Mm -hmm. a more widespread voucher system. They're able to do all that in the Chilean context. And then uh, eventually there is a plebiscite and the dictator does leave power. But there ended up really being a taint in many ways between Friedman's ideas and the dictatorship. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is show this much broader context. And that's certainly an episode that deserves discussion. It's not the full episode of Friedman's Mm -hmm. career. And he's not really the prime mover, nor does he have a really any significant relationship with Pinochet. And then stepping back even more, the economic history of Chile has really stood out from its peer nations Mm -hmm. in Latin America. It's been strong growth, significant reduction in poverty, stable currency by and large. And so in many ways, if you take the biggest macro view, those policies did exactly what Friedman said they would do in terms of delivering a more prosperous economy and more wealth and stability to Chileans. And also another measure of his success is that Chile actually has the highest level of savings of any country in the Western Hemisphere, and its savings rate approximates that of Asian countries, some of the Asian tigers. But let's move on to 1979, when Margaret Thatcher's Tories come to power, and 1981, when Ronald Reagan is sworn in as President of the United States. Tell us about Milton Friedman's influence and impact on Margaret Thatcher's economic policies and on Ronald Reagan's economic policies. So he turns out to have sort of a a mutual admiration society with (laughs) Margaret Thatcher. And at the same time, though, it's a little bit tricky because most of his advice, I would say that the advice about privatizing and unleashing the private sector is Thatcher didn't really need Friedman to say that was a good idea. She was already on board. Mm -hmm. Where he had more specific ideas about monetary policy, the the situation in Great Britain was just different in terms of the various different agencies and the Bank of England and their powers. So we weren't always able to map his advice specifically on the policy. But Thatcher really knew that Friedman kind of symbolized what she was trying to do. And likewise, you know, Reagan and Thatcher had that mutual admiration and this feeling that both of us are trying to move our countries in a similar direction where we're trying to basically think about let's put the private sector first and government second when we think about solutions or we think about policy steps to take. And so in Reagan's case, there's a strong personal relationship. Friedman's on an informal advisory board, and he's really pivotal in helping Reagan support Paul Volcker's decision to use monetary policy to bring inflation to a halt. And it, it unfolds its very high interest rates. And Friedman is basically able to give Reagan the courage of his convictions that this period of economic pain is going to be short. And then overall, the economy will benefit from having inflation squeezed out of it. So all that being said, you know, Friedman and Paul Volcker don't really get along. I dig into that relationship in the book and, and Friedman's sort of reluctant to credit Volcker with anything, and Volcker's reluctant <laughs> to credit Friedman with anything. So it's very strange. Um, but the, the connection is there nonetheless. And then I would say that broader vision, a, a more limited government, really infuses the Reagan ethos. So people in the administration, you know, Friedman, if they're not directly following Friedman, he's certainly somebody they know and someone who kind of maps out a general direction for where they want to take economic policy. Of course, uh, Milton Friedman passed away in 2006, but let's move on to 2008, 2009, the financial crisis. And of course, uh, Ben Bernanke was the, uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve. 
tell us about Ben Bernanke's policy approach to dealing with to dealing with that crisis. And it brings me back to the second quote at the beginning of your book when, and I'm paraphrasing here because I haven't got the quote right in front of me, but this is a quote from Milton Friedman where he talks about sometimes radical ideas are left in abeyance and they're just kind of laying around till a crisis comes along. Nothing else has, has everything else has been tried, doesn't work. So these, so this idea might work. I'm paraphrasing it, but uh, tell, yeah, yeah. tell us about Ben Bernanke well, so- and, uh, and, the influence that Milton Friedman's ideas had on that particular crisis. So, I mean, this goes back in some ways to Friedman living through the Great Depression and making the riddle of the Great Depression something he wanted to solve in his career. And with his great collaborator, Anna Schwartz, they published an analysis of the Great Depression in a monetary history of the United States that said this was essentially a deflation caused in part by the Federal Reserve's inaction. It was a liquidity crisis. The Federal Reserve could have and should have pumped money into the system to support the banking system, and it did not. And that's why we got a 10-year depression. And that argument just remains foundational for the study of inflation, for the study of monetary policy. And that's exactly where Ben Bernanke went when he was a policymaker faced with an economic crisis, which was liquidity. We have to create liquidity and we have to act. And the greatest harm would be not acting. And so that is Friedman and Schwartz come to life, and it came to life again in the COVID crisis. And so that's really been one of these lasting contributions that's really beyond partisan politics, beyond government philosophy. It's a sort of technical analysis of when you're in this banking crisis, what should the central bank do? And Friedman was aware there might be moral hazard and there might be mistakes made. But in his view, based on his and Schwartz's research, the far greater mistake was to not act. And so the, the fact that the Federal Reserve is, is really understood as having a role and a duty in the crisis, I mean, it wasn't before Friedman and Schwartz published, there wasn't a strong connection between the actions of the Federal Reserve and the Great Depression, mm-hmm. or really economic stability in general. The, the, the federal government was where the action was seen, and Friedman really shifted it towards the Federal Reserve system and the banking system and kind of pointed out, this is where we need to be putting our focus. And so... You know, you can dig into the details of policy, which I do, and and people aren't running monetary policy the way Friedman suggested, and that would really wouldn't make sense. That institutions have evolved and changed, but that global picture of what is monetary policy, how should we react, what is the role and duty of the Fed, and what can the Fed do and not do in the economy, that is really the lasting legacy of Friedman and Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Well, Jennifer, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast. What are your closing thoughts about Milton Friedman? Of course, you've had the opportunity to work on the 200 boxes of his uh, yeah. documents and papers there at the uh, Hoover Institution. Uh, give us, uh, has, has any other writer before had the access that you've had to his uh, personal papers and work? Well, I would say they're they're open, they're accessible there at Stanford, and the archive would love you to come take a visit. So come come poke around if you're interested. What I think I really take away from the project is, you know, that Friedman was not just, I think this is a F.A. Hayek quote, anyone who's a great economist cannot only be an economist. And as I talk about, in many ways, Friedman, especially in his work with Schwartz, was also a historian. And what he did is he took a 150-year view on economic history. And so when he approached a problem in the present day, his aperture of vision was vast. And so he never assumed that what's happening today is what's going to happen tomorrow. He always knew things could change. So whether it's understanding that interest rates can go up, interest rates can go down, you know, as opposed to viewing the moment of window time you're in as being the way it's always going to be. 
or thinking, you know, this was something he would say, interest rates sometimes reflect inflation, they don't hem it in. And people were like, what are you talking about? Well, that's the story we saw in the 1970s. So I think I came away with a respect for his ability to think deeply mm-hmm. and long term and also to think across disciplines. And then his willingness also to come into the public view and say, you know, what he believed in philosophically, as well as what he had found in his economic research. And I think he kind of packaged those all together and then really made an effort to communicate beyond the ivory tower in which he was extremely successful at doing. So just really a polymathic uh, person with a lot of different strengths. And I think we'll we'll think of him as really uh, symbolizing a 20th century worldview that while not perfect, did bring a lot of positive change to the world. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, where can our listeners buy a copy of the book, Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative? It should be out any any reputable bookseller. And I think the Stanford Bookstore has some signed copies if that's what you're after. So uh-huh. put in a plug for them. Very good. And Jennifer, any new projects on the horizon for you? You know, I have a couple of things in the works, but nothing I'm, I'm ready to broadcast now. This was a 10-year project. And so... I'm very pleased to be taking a little bit of a breather, collecting my thoughts and getting ready for what's next. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer, how can our listeners follow you? So I'm on exit at Prof Burns. I have a website, jenniferburns.org, where I tend to post you know, academic articles that I can make available. And so those are two good places to see what I'm up to. And what about LinkedIn? Are you on LinkedIn? Uh, I am. I'm not very active, but sure, you could find me there. I see. Jennifer Burns, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And for our listeners, this episode marks our 500th show since we began in late March 2020. Thank you for your ongoing support and interest. Continue to listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms, and join our listener base in 60 countries. Feedspot has recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast ranking us number 12. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Hurley coming to you from San Francisco.